Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. Today you have me, Jared, the review gnome, and a very special guest. So today on the Gnomecast, I have another special guest. Why don't you tell us who you are and where people might know you from in the TTRPG space? Well, I am Sean Merwin, and you might, if you are a player of D&D, know my work through Wizards of the Coast. For 5th edition, I worked on the Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus adventure. I also co-wrote with Teos Abadia and our great Wrangler editor, Scott Fitzgerald Gray, the Acquisitions Incorporated hardcover book. If you're an organized play aficionado, I've written several adventures for the Adventures League, and I helped with the Eberron campaign known as Oracle of War, which just wrapped up recently. For fourth edition, I worked on some Wizards of the Coast projects, including Halls of Undermountain hardcover, the last adventure that they published for fourth edition. I like to think <laughs> that I, I killed fourth edition. <laughs> and honestly, I was going to, I was going to, since you mentioned uh, Halls of Undermountain, I liked Dernan the Fourth, and I kind of liked having his family continue things on. No offense to Dernan himself, but just yeah. throwing that out there. Yeah, I mean, I would love to. T- I could talk for a whole episode just about Dernan the Fourth. <laughs> we can get back to that if you want. But uh, yeah, so I've been freelancing for probably twenty-two years now since since third edition started. Outside of D anD, I worked on the game. Star Trek Adventures from Modifius Entertainment, and I contributed to the Dracula dossier supplement for Knights Black Agents. If you know what D&D Beyond is, I wrote a series of articles there called Let's Design an Adventure, where we went through and talked about adventure design from concepting to how to get it published. And I have two podcasts, one on this wonderful Misdirected Mark Network <laughs> called Mastering Dungeons that I do with Teo Sabadia, and then I do one called the Eldritch Lorecast with Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, and Ben Byrne. That is done through Ghostfire Gaming. And Ghostfire Gaming is where I currently reside as <laughs> a executive lead designer for projects for them. So I've been doing this for a long time, like I said, and I've forgotten more projects than I probably worked on at this point <laughs> over the years. But I've seen a, a word or two up on a screen, let's put it that way. <laughs> I was going to say, for what it's worth, Star Trek Adventures is probably my second favorite RPG right now. That's going to be my uh, alternating Thursdays between you know my D&D game and Star Trek Adventures. So mm-hmm. Sweet. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I specifically wrote the adventure at the back of the book. Mm-hmm. And then, then as I was writing that, sort of went back and forth with the rules people saying, hey, you know, I really want to do this in the adventure. Do we have a way to do this in the rules? You know, that sort of <laughs> thing. So it was it was a really fun project to work on. I think that was that's one of the few things where I got to be a player in that one uh-huh. because we ran through that adventure and then I took over, you know, running campaigns. Mm-hmm. So sweet. As I usually do. Yeah. <laughs> I understand that. But to bring this back around to Sean, <laughs> where do you think the most fertile design space in 5e OGL games is? Or since I'm not getting paid for it, I'll say D&D. But <laughs> understood. Understood. Yeah. I mean, 5e, uh, well, D&D in general, 
is obviously different than a lot of other tabletop role-playing games, but it's also similar to too many. For me, in most role-playing games, the most fertile ground for people to interface with is adventure design, because we come into the game normally first as players, sometimes as game masters. So that first, uh, our first touch of, of a game is that in, within an adventure. And that's where we learn, and that's where we have the fun, and that's where our imaginations begin to take root in a game. So I think the most fertile space is that, creating short adventures, long adventures. Adventures in established settings are a great way to get started. Creating your own setting is equally fun, a little more challenging, but very fertile ground. You could create adventures that that highlight any type of play. So there's even within that one category of adventure design, there's lots and lots of different routes you can take when you do that. What's interesting to me when you bring up adventures, and since we did just mention Star Trek Adventures as well as D&D, there is a very stark difference in how adventures are presented between those two systems, because I've reviewed a lot of the, you know, the individual Star Trek Adventures. And it does seem like, depending on, you know, for that game system, there is a lot more of, here's the overall setup, listen to the players and see how they want to solve this, and then pull out whatever rules they decide to apply. Whereas with D&D, there's a lot more trying to guess what people are doing before they do it. Yeah, in a lot of ways, with D&D, especially when you get things like high-level spells, especially wizard spells or sorcerer spells, you get a lot of short-circuiting of what you had planned. So you sort of have to, as you design adventures, especially for high, higher-level characters, take those things in consideration. Whereas with, with like a science fiction game, with technology, everyone usually has access to that. So it's sort of a known when you go into it that yeah, everyone's going to have a phaser and a tricorder and a communicator and be able to teleport in and out of places. So you, know, you could just sort of present a problem and let them use their own wide array of, of technology and know-how to <laughs> to get through that. You were talking about designing in other spaces in uh, RPGs. Yeah, designing in other parts of role-playing games is a lot of fun, and, and it's very challenging, and it requires just as much creativity and imagination as adventures. But there are more constraints when you start designing classes or spells or feats or those sort of player-facing elements of a game. You have to take much more care. You can get a little carefree when you're designing an adventure, and normally you or the DMs that are running it can figure things out, but when you make a subclass that's too powerful or too weak and the player sits down and starts either wreaking havoc in the game or just having a miserable time because they can't do anything fun in the game, that's a little more risky. You're, you're on a high wire there as opposed to in a bouncy house. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting contrast there. I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I would like to ask you, what is Aurora? And I'd also like to point out, I said that first try, better than Matt Mercer last week. Just saying. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I still have not seen that, although I have had many, many people tell me that it was quite a catastrophe oh my goodness he tripped over that so hard <laughs> oh yeah yeah well the the irony is aurora is the name of the new project for ghostfire gaming that is currently in kickstarter 
It is also the name of my daughter. <laughs> now, <laughs> this was not meant to be that way, but we were brainstorming names for this project. And our graphic designer said, what about Aurora? And he showed me a nice logo that he'd created, A-R-O-R-A, -R -R -A, which is missing the U that goes mm -hmm. into the name that that we named our daughter. And I was like, boy, that's my daughter's name. I really like it. <laughs> and it works like it's a palindrome, right? It works backwards and forwards the same way. You can do all sorts of cool graphic things with it. I'm like, let me check with her. So I <laughs> said to her, is it okay if we name this project Aurora without a U? She's like, sure, go ahead. So I'm like, oh, okay, we, we have a name. So that name is what we are calling our world setting and rules companion for 5e. So we're running this Kickstarter called Aurora Age of Desolation. And we call it that because it focuses on the story of one moment, one era in this world's history called the Age of Desolation. The idea for this setting has been rummaging around in my head for probably as long as I've been playing, which has been 40, 40 years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what I wanted to do with this world is create a world in which the default story is going to be very different than the default stories that you might get in Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk or any other sort of typical kitchen sink setting for D&D. I wanted a place that really relied on the players themselves to imagine what world they want to be in and have the opportunity to make that world the way that they want to make it. Not as players, but as their characters, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're in this wide open blank slate, post-apocalyptic twice <laughs> setting <laughs> and you know full of danger but also full of the opportunity to not just build the world but build the society that they want for for their for you know, for their characters to live in so it's got a long and varied history <laughs> let's put it that way i can delve into the history if you don't have any immediate questions about <laughs> about the setting well i mean i, I was just going to say i know that i've heard you both on the eldritch Floorcast and on uh mastering dungeons talking about how you wanted uh the setting to be distinct and making sure there you could tell different stories that weren't things that you could tell in a general D, &D setting that already exists so what would you see mm -hmm. um are those distinct uh elements of the setting and what kind of stories can you tell in this setting that you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell as easily in existing settings? It's a story of survival, and it's a story where the normal things that characters might fall back on as places of refuge or places of social acceptance are gone, starting with races. There are no races in Aurora. At one point in the world's history, the dragon goddess that sort of watched over this world saw that there was a threat coming that was going to annihilate the world. And so she took a drastic step in creating a, a protection for this. And she wasn't in control of this sort of spell she was casting, but she knew she needed all the energy of all those sentient living creatures of the world to do this. So she, she took it. And unfortunately, she killed everything in the world, <laughs> but she actually saved the world itself from this threat. And so seeing what she had done, she had taken in 
and absorbed all of the traits of every sentient creature that was on the world at that time. And so she decided that she was going to repopulate the world, starting with five dragons. And these dragons would be sort of the progenitors of the the world. They would each be given a realm. And the world itself had broken into five realms because of this great abjuration that, that she performed. So she made a dragon for each realm. And the dragons were then tasked to procreate. And so they started laying eggs. And these eggs, when they hatched, some of them were true dragons. Some were sort of dragon kin. So humanoids with draconic features like dragonborn, kobolds, um, a centaur-like dragon race called Dragar. So like the bodies of a dragonborn, but the, the t- back ends mm-hmm. of a dragon. But also this strange amalgam of all the other traits of all the other races that had been on the world. So every creature is pretty unique when they're born. And after they're born, after the first wave was born from dragon eggs, they could then intermingle with each other and repopulate the world as as anyone would. But their offspring don't follow in their own in their parents' genetic trait. They are just made from whatever random trait is still swirling around in this genetic pool that started. And we model that through a character creation system that lets you pick traits for your, instead of a race, you, you take traits from your heritage. So, you know, you could have uh, claws, you could have wings, you could have a fierce demeanor, you could be able to charge really well and attack. We divided these traits into three separate categories, combat, exploration, environmental, and role-playing. So when you create the characters, the default is take three traits from combat, two traits from role-playing, and two traits from environmental exploration. And when you do that, you get a nice combination, and you can do it randomly. There'll be a deck of cards that you can draw from or a table you can roll on and create your character's heritage in that way. So is there an equivalent to starting in a tavern in this setting? Not really. Not really. I mean, it's going to be up to the game master. And we tried to leave some room for a a game master to start at various locations in the timeline. The big trigger of the timeline is called the Dragon Rage. The dragons have become sort of overlords of each of their realms, some benevolently, some not so benevolent, uh, more tyrannical. When the dragon rage hits, though, it drives the dragons as well as the dragon kin that that serve them, uh, drives them mad. And they become, or most of them become feral. So the characters are, when the dragon rage hits, used to a social structure where the dragons are at the top, the dragon kin are sort of middle management, and then they are just the average folks in the setting. And so for some characters, they may get all their food from the dragons. You know, they may do certain labor and they come home and the dragons have given them food. Well, now there's no food because the dragons are feral. And so how do you do that? So you could start a campaign right after or right during the Dragon Rage. You could also set it several hundred years later where society now has completely collapsed and your meat at a tavern is you're out hunting for food 
and you come across other folks also hunting for food <laughs> or you are running from a marauding dragon. Oh, and by the way, so are these other folks. So there can be <laughs> communities. Mm-hmm. There can be places of relative safety, but there is no you walk into a tavern, plop down some coins and, you know, get a get a meal and talk with someone. It's it's mm-hmm. much more harrowing than that. Can you shed any light on what the expanded exploration and survival rules will address? I sure can. So this is an ac- actually an excellent question that comes in right after, you know, where do you start? <laughs> so since, since the world has been collapsing or is in the process of collapsing, depending on where you set, set your campaign, the first step that the characters will, in a campaign that I would run, the first step that the characters would have to take is find safety, mm-hmm. find a place where you can sleep for tonight, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So that first thing is find your safety, get yourself to a safe spot where you can at least begin thinking about survival. Once you do that, now you need resources. Now you need to find maybe other people in the same situation as you. Maybe you heard a rumor that there used to be a city a hundred miles from here, maybe there's resources there. So let's let's explore there. What we've set up is, I think, a pretty ingenious system where regions within the game world that the characters will be inhabiting. Now, DMs can make this, will supply some of it, but DMs can also make their own. We make a character sheet for a region. So a region could be 25 square miles. It could be 100 square miles. Depending on how big the region is, the DM will either get or create a character sheet for that area. That character sheet will show things like common areas, like obvious areas, a huge lake, a huge mountain. Those are obvious. You can just see them Mm -hmm. from miles away. Then there are less common areas. Then there are hidden areas. Then there are secret areas. And you have a character sheet for this region that details what each of these things are at the highest level, and then what might be dangerous about them. The characters have a sheet as well, but their sheet is blank. Mm -hmm. So what happens is they like, okay, I've heard a rumor that there is an abandoned city that was there 200 years ago, we've heard. So let's go to that area. So the regional sheet that the characters have, they might write down, you know, City of Silk, rumored. Mm -hmm. And now they can begin an exploration. The first part of the exploration might be gathering information. So if there are books, if there are scrolls that are left over from the before times that may have information about it, characters could make checks. If there are other explorers that the characters run into, they might try to get information out of them and they can make checks. Based on the gathering of information and other reconnaissance that the characters do, they get a certain number of discovery points. And they can spend those discovery points to ask the DM questions that will then allow them to start filling out their regional character sheet. Okay, there is a city because this other explorer passed it, didn't go into it, but he passed it. Each of the areas also has a danger rating. And the danger rating is sort of separate from any adventures that might happen there. It's just in general, if we were trying to survive in this part of this region, in this city, near this mountain, around this lake. How dangerous is it? And they can also learn using their discovery points, the danger rating. Then 
once they've spent their points, they've gathered all the information they can, now they can actually explore it. And it becomes a similar thing, only now rather than gathering rumors, they're going to see what's really there. And they gather more discovery points as they explore, Mm -hmm. learning more information as they go. Now, when they try to rest, whether it's a short or a long rest, if they get to an area that has a very high danger rating, and this is all based on 1 to 20, and if you know what a D20 is, you can see where this is going, right? (laughs) If something has a super high danger rate, oh, this is a 19. If you try to rest there, the DM rolls a D20, and on a 19 or lower, something bad is coming. (laughs) So if you learned about that ahead of time, you could avoid that area and go to this other area where it's sort of safer to stay. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're exploring using this sort of character sheet point system to learn information and then use that information to guide your exploration and your understanding of the area that you're heading into. I like that because the discovery points <laughs> to once again bring up Star Trek Adventures. It kind yeah. of reminds me of when the way that's phrased when someone like looks for answers is they're asking the GM a question. It's not just I got a 17 on my knowledge roll. What do I know? It's no, yeah. you ask me a question and I will answer it for you. And I sure. really like that kind of interchange, you know, when it comes mm-hmm. because then the player is more actively thinking, well, not just whatever the GM wants to throw at me, but what does my what is my character actually looking for when they're engaging this system? Yeah, yeah. And then there's, you know, there's a chance too that something that you learned was true 20 years ago, but is mm-hmm. no longer true. So even the information you gather, depending on who you gather it from and, and how you gather it, may be true, may be false, may, you know, may be close to true, but slightly different. So there's always mm-hmm. that sort of mystery, too, until you actually walk into you know, the place and see for yourself. Oh, yeah. The other thing that's funny is you were talking about when you're explaining that danger rating. One of the things that I've done like in adventures that I have run myself is you know, depending on how much of a pain in the butt the PCs have made themselves in an area, mm-hmm. I will increase the threat range for the um, encounter difficulty. So like, or for the uh, random encounter chance. So if it starts off like on an 18 and 19 and they make a big noise, it might go to 16 through 20 instead. So that's, exactly. I kind of like that because that is sort of that same progressive, yeah. you know, idea there. Yeah. And these danger ratings can always change based on character actions. So if they're looking for a lost pyramid that housed a former dragon leader and there was a settlement next to it, you know, the settlement might start out as a a danger rating of 15. But as the characters go in, they clear out some things and then you as the DM can create an adventure that takes place there. And if they do that, then the danger rating gets down to five. Mm -hmm. They can now establish this as a base. And then from this base, able to go out and explore other areas that they're interested in uh, in seeing. So since we already talked about one of the other selling points of this, what about the expanded advantage rules? So the advantage rules and the new heritage you know, character creation system came from the brain of Scott Fitzgerald Gray. If you don't know Scott's work, you'd actually do. Uh, if you open any <laughs> Wizards of the Coast product from the last, I don't know, 15 years, there's a good chance Scott Gray's name is in it as editor. He's also done design and development work. But, you know, for Wizards of the Coast, 
He really has been for years now their go-to editor, and he is just a great designer, a great design mind, great storytelling mind. So he came up with this system. What it does is if you have advantage on a roll, rather than rolling that extra d20, you can draw a card. There will be cards that come with the Kickstarter. If you didn't get the cards, there will be a table you can roll on. Mm -hmm. So rather than taking that extra D20, you draw a card or roll on the table and it gives you a different benefit. Now, there are a variety of different benefits you can get. So they're random, but they're generally things that are a little more meaty than just an extra D20 for advantage. And they become more utile in choosing when to use. Mm -hmm. So you know, rather than taking that, if you draw something, it might let you force a, a monster to re-roll an attack roll or a skill check or a saving throw. And what we did was we said, you have to use the card on the same type of check that you got the advantage from. So you can't, for example, you know, oh, I have an advantage on my history check, so I'm going to draw a card instead. Oh, look, now I'm going to use this card while we're fighting, you know, Tiamat. <laughs> no, you have to use, if you got the advantage from a skill check, you need to use the card on a skill check to keep that sort of balance. But that's the crux of the system. And what's also nice about it is you could do something like, rather than giving inspiration, you could throw a card at the player as the game mm -hmm. master which gives you know a little more game to the game mm -hmm. rather than just that extra d20. So, you know, it's it's just a little fun twist to the game that for tactical players or for players that like a little more chaos in their story might be a fun um a fun mechanic. Might also not be a bad alternate for if you're going to be a stickler and you know only have people with inspiration or without if they would have gotten inspiration you can still throw something at them so they're not sure. just saying, I would like to reward you, but <laughs> you haven't used yeah. the last reward I gave you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so the, it's just a handy little deck or table to give out some different sort of tactical benefits. And then, of course, if people want to just keep their advantage, they can totally do that. So you mentioned this before you started talking about how, you know, the custom ancestries and how people in this world have traits from all of the, you know, the kind of people that came before, but what do those rules look like a little bit more in depth? Okay, so you get to choose traits based on a list. The list right now is 90 traits, give or take. We may add some, we may take some away, depending on how playtesting goes. And we divide those into this, the categories of the pillars of D&D. So there are combat traits, role-playing traits, and exploration environmental traits. And we suggest that you divide them up three combat traits, two environmental exploration traits, and two role-playing traits. You could always change that as the game master. Okay, my players like a little more combat, so I'm going to give them four combat traits. As long as you give the same number to all of the players, I think mm -hmm. everything is fine. It's, you don't want one player choosing seven role-playing traits. Yeah, they're choosing seven combat traits because that would <laughs> that would be a little wonky. But you can tailor them in any way for your campaign. These will also be on cards if you so choose. Mm -hmm. So you could also use these traits as sort of wild magic cards because the world of Aurora is ever changing. 
as this great abjuration that the dragon goddess created cracks and this exterior threat seeps through. Mm-hmm. So you could always say, oh, by the way, uh, you, you, you're feeling a little strange. Flip a card up. Oh, guess what? You have wings now. <laughs> How long are they going to last? I don't know. Maybe until you're up in the air. But, <laughs> you know, you have that. Or you have a breath weapon now. Or for some reason, you know, you're, you're a little more ferocious now. You're proficient in uh, intimidation or you, you're double proficient in intimidation. <laughs> yeah, what I was going to ask is um, I'm listening to how this works. What I'm curious about is, let's say you were playing in a more standard setting, but you don't necessarily want all of your elves to have the same traits or all of your dwarves mm-hmm. to have the same trait. Could you custom build what exists with a little bit more, you know, specialty? I would totally say yes. We have packaged some of these together in packages to approximate races that people are used to in their D&D games. So if you want to play... I like elves. I just want to play it like an elf. Then you just, we give you the seven traits that you should take. And it's pretty much like an elf from any setting. But maybe you just want, I don't want to be resistant to sleep. I, I want this other thing instead. So just swap it out and, and you're just like an elf, except, you know, you have a breath weapon or, right, you can breathe underwater for some reason. You're more of an aquatic <laughs> elf or, or, you know, whatever, whatever you want. Will we see any new subclasses, and what would your guiding principles be when you're uh, creating those? The guiding principle for this book specifically is, like races, we want these to help characters and players within this specialized setting tell a certain story. So both subclasses and backgrounds are specifically tied to regions or elements of regions, or an element of the whole world. So one of the realms is like a volcanic hellscape, almost literally, that there are like demonic things leaking through. So, you know, we have a druid subclass of the Circle of Volcanoes. So these are, you know, druids Mm. who have grown up and learned to harness the power of the volcano. We have a desert setting, the desert, though, has covered this ancient metropolis where this source of extreme power was held. So we have a warlock pact to this source of power. Mm-hmm. One of the areas was tied to the realms of the dead. So we have a subclass, you know, something that has to do with the transport of dead souls mm-hmm. from this world to the next. Yeah, a, a bunch of things like that for tying the the characters very tightly to to the the realm uh, in which they live. And same with backgrounds. The one thing about this world that we wanted to be slightly different was when the dragon goddess created this abjuration that protected the world. It also held out powerful magic. The outside threat called the shard scale was drawn to magic. So one of the things that this abjuration does is, is it's for years has kept out magic. So we didn't have wizards in the traditional sense. Even the dragons themselves, their powerful magic was dampened. So one of the subclasses is called the hedge wizard. So it's, you know, you sort of learned the lowest, to do the most you possibly could 
with the lowest level magic that you could. <laughs> now, of course, as this great abjuration cracks, more powerful magic is leaking through. So you're able to cast higher level spells, but your training is very much in like sort of the, the scraping uh, things together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that's, that's the focus we had when we created the, the subclasses and the, um, the backgrounds for it. So how portable do you see these rules elements from Aurora? Is this going to be something that has a lot of utility for people that are using traditional D&D settings as well as uh, using the native setting to the to the supplement? I I certainly hope so. That's part of the part of the plan is you want to do like a hex crawly sort of thing. Try out our exploration and survival you know, right system. You know, we think it's pretty good somewhere between a too, very you know a much too strict system and a anything go system you know you're, mm-hmm. you're gaining these points and you're spending these points so it gamifies it what we're hoping is just the right amount to make it a fun game within the game but also leave you open to do lots of different things as you explore mm-hmm. same thing with the the heritage rules you know we want people to be able to jettison race as as a construct in the game if they so choose and you know let players envision their character first not worry about the rules but just say what do i want the character to look like what do i want it to be able to do without even thinking about the rules mm-hmm. does it have wings is it sort of you know did it come from an elephantine race or a, a leonid race and if so what can i do with that and then when they pick their traits sort of do the same thing in reverse it's oh my character can fly but does it fly because of wings or does it fly because it has some innate magical power or does it burst air from holes in its armpits? And, you know, <laughs> is it like, does it have tentacles? So it shoots uh, like out of these squid you know, suckers and shoots up in the air and can hover for a while. Right. That's the you person just... that got plump traits. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, you could do, do all sorts of things and, and rather than being tied down to not just the mechanical traits of a race, but also the the lore of the race. You can jettison all that and you can say, this is the kind of society that I want our world to have now. So we're going to build that and we're going to start right now. And the decisions we make, whether it's a meritocracy or a democracy or some other form of a mageocracy or a... a <laughs> theocracy based on paladins whatever you can do that and that becomes not just a part of the story but the crux of the story and there aren't the harpers there to make you do a certain thing or the zentarum or the thieves guild or whatever sort of ancient lore that is great in in these worlds but is also weighs down these worlds and limits the, the kinds of stories that you can tell I hear majocracies do really well in D and D. Not not at all blown oh, up ten thousand yeah. years yes, ago. Yes, it's it's always yeah. Greyhawk <laughs> never had the twin cataclysms. That that would have no, never. Yeah. Oh goodness, majocracy. Let's, yeah, okay. let's cross that one off the list of uh, yeah, things to yeah. <laughs> So thank you very much for being on the show. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me in lots and lots and lots of places, including <laughs> on Twitter. I am at Sean Merwin, 
S-H-A-W-N-M-E-R-W-I-N. If you want to be notified about Ghostfire gaming products, because not only do we make role-playing game products, but we're going to be soon opening a, a tabletop board game line, you can follow them at GhostfireG on Twitter, or you can go to GhostfireGaming.com and sign up to be notified uh, you know, like, like a newsletter about when, uh, when things are happening. We also have a pretty uh, constructive Discord community for Ghostfire Gaming if you want to join that. The two podcasts I do, as I mentioned before, are Mastering Dungeons on the Misdirected Mark Network and the Eldritch Lorecast, which you can find uh, at Ghostfire Gaming as well. Whew, I think that's it. And if you're, you know, if you're ever in Western New York, just yell really loud and I can probably hear you. I did that once. You did. You were there. I, uh, I did DM for you. I remember it well. Well, I just want to say thank you for walking a couple doors down in the huge hallways of the Misdirected Mark recording studio. I'm lying. There's not a Misdirected Mark recording studio. No. Anyway. <laughs> But thank you for being on here, and uh, we'll catch you elsewhere on the network. Sounds good. Thank you. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You, too, can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad brought to you by Gamer Post-Apocalyptic Bunkers. Other post-apocalyptic bunkers try to convince you to buy because they have things like safe water and food. But Gamer Post-Apocalyptic Bunkers know what you really need. Dice, a gaming table and all of those games you never got around to playing before the end of the world. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Mastering Dungeons. RPG veterans and game designers John Merwin and Teos Abadia look at the game and the hobby of D&D from a variety of viewpoints. Reporting the news, understanding the business, reviewing the products, and illuminating the design. Whether you're a fan, a player, a DM, or a designer, Sean and Teos cover topics of interest to you. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. You can find all of my reviews outside of gnomestew at whatdoiknowjr.com, and you can find me at whatdoiknowjr on Twitter. Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.